This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Our session two is entitled The Progress and Pitfalls of Structural Reforms. Unprecedented collaboration among Mexico's political parties led to an ambitious package of reforms touching key sectors and issues including energy, telecommunications, education, and the justice system. This panel will provide an overview of what the reforms have achieved to date, the practical challenges of implementation, and the long-term implications of it for the country. <laughs> It's my pleasure to introduce my good friend, David Shirk, who's going to be the moderator for this session. He's an associate professor and director of the Masters of Arts in International Relations at the University of San Diego. A two-time U.S. Mex fellow, David heads the Justice in Mexico Initiative. His research concerns Mexican politics, U.S.-Mexican relations, and law enforcement and security along the U.S.-Mexico border. Ernesto Canales has an extensive practice as corporate in-house legal counsel and as a private practitioner and arbiter in international litigations. He also holds several board memberships, including for the, Nas the, the Red Nacional de Organizaciones Civiles de Apoyo a los Juicios Orales y el Debido Proceso. Claudio X. González is the president and co-founder of the Mexicanos Primero a plural and independent social responsibility initiative focused on achieving quality education across Mexico. Gonzalez also is the co-founder of several other initiatives to improve education in Mexico, including Fundación Televisa, MX Becalos, and Unete. Judith Mariscal is a professor at the Centro de Investigación y Docencia Económicas, where she researches information and communications technologies, policy for development in Latin America, as well as ICT regulatory policies. A member at the highest level of the National Research System in Mexico, she also is director of telecommunications research at CIDE. Hello to Jeremy, too. Is the, who is the director of the Energy Program at the Institute of the Americas. Jenner, Jeremy focus, focuses on the geopolitics of energy and closely follows energy, industry trends, and policy issues across the Americas. He's a frequent commentator and writer on Latin American and energy issues. I turn the panel over to David. Great. Thank you so much, Graciela. It's so wonderful to have Graciela uh, back uh, in our midst. Um, uh, I want to thank uh, the Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies, um, uh, Peter Cowie, and um, Melissa Floca, uh, Greg Malinger, and all the uh, Center for U.S.-Mexico team uh, for uh, organizing this event for, and, and for inviting us uh, to be here. Uh, it's a great honor for me to share the stage with our panelists, who are all uh, distinguished experts and leaders uh, in their respective areas. Um, we're a month away from the midpoint of the Peña Nieto administration. Uh, it is over the next three years that Peña Nieto will begin to work to consolidate his legacy, and everyone else will work to try to figure out who's going to be the next president of Mexico. Um, we're here to talk about structural reforms. Structural reforms, of course, were the... Um, the centerpiece, really, of uh, the Peña Nieto administration, uh, particularly during its 
first year in, uh, during his first year in office, uh, they were the um, uh, the accomplishment. Uh, largely of the pacto uh, that was negotiated across all three parties. Um, and they were seen as central to this uh, concept of the Mexico moment, that this is a, that uh, the Pinyaneta administration was a critical juncture, a, a uh, coyuntura for achieving major change. And, and um, they even, the Pinyaneta administration even stole the lemma from this particular conference, uh, they, they use moving Mexico, but it's really a thinly disguised ripoff of Mexico moving forward. Right? So uh, I think what our task is in this panel is to really consider whether the Mexico moment uh, for moving Mexico towards structural reform was in fact a Mexico moment. Uh, in other words, was this really a, a momentous, uh, mom, uh, a, a, a critical juncture uh, on each of these issues? Was there a Mexico moment? Um, and also, what do we mean when we say Mexico moment? Because un momento <laughs> has a whole different meaning in Mexico. Um, and so, uh, is the Mexico moment over? Is it still going on? Um, where are we in the Mexico moment? Um, has it been lost? Um, or uh, can it be sustained? And I think that um, on each of these policy areas, whether we're talking about education, uh, telecommunications, energy, or judicial sector reform, all of them incredibly important to Mexico's future and towards Mexico moving forward, um, what... Um, what has been accomplished and where are we headed? Uh, so we have an incredibly uh, rich panel to debate these issues. And uh, with no further ado, I I'd like to uh, turn the panel over to uh, Claudio, Claudio X. Gonzalez, who is going to uh, talk to us about education. Uh, he has a very short PowerPoint that he'll uh, show. Uh, and then we'll move through the panel, uh, in reintroducing each member of the panel. So Claudio, please. Thank you very, very much uh, for that introduction. And uh, I am very, very glad to be here in uh, UCSD. It's my first time here. I'm very impressed with the uh, infrastructure, with the organization, thanks to all the organizers, uh, high and low. And uh, uh, thank you very much, and a special acknowledgement to Manuel Weinberg, who plays such an important role in bringing uh, people up from Mexico for these panels. Uh, thank you very much, Manuel, for your generosity and graciousness through all this uh, process. And uh, very keen to talk to all of you about a very critical reform, education reform. It is not as well known, I don't think, as uh, energy reform, telecom reform, and other reforms that are taking place in our country. But in my opinion, as important, or even if we consider the long run, more important than uh, energy and telecom reform. And I don't want to minimize those. I just want to maximize the importance of this uh, specific reform. And we have, I'm going to state that outright, a failed educational system. I'm going to try to back that up with data in the next few minutes and then try to uh, give you uh, a sense of what we're trying to do to change this. Uh, let me just say that I'm also very happy to see very good friends in the, in the audience from Mexico and from the US. And that is a, an added bonus to this uh, 
great meeting. Um, two main themes to my presentation. Why we need reform, the contextual information, and then how we're carrying out that reform. And I'm going to try to reduce that to nine very important steps uh, in that direction. In terms of diagnosis, I want to quote uh, a US president from the 19th century. He was president for only a few days. He was assassinated. But he said uh, something that everybody says, the truth will set you free. But he made also a reality check. But first, it will make you miserable. And that is how we feel sometimes about our educational uh, system. Let me talk first about uh, quantity of education, then, then I'll talk a little bit about quality of education. We're talking here about the fact that we are wounding every generation of kids and youth in Mexico. We have been doing that for decades, unfortunately. Uh, as I said, I will try to back this strong statement with data. And here's the first data that I want to give you. These are the high school graduation rates for different countries, Germany at 95%, and at the bottom of the table, Mexico at 47%. This means that by uh, 18 years of age, we have more than half our generation out of schooling and uh, in informality or even worse things. That is something we have to change. These are numbers that belong to the early 20th century, not to the early 21st century in the case of Mexico. Uh, that gives us an amount of uh, national schooling per person of 8.8 years. That means that our uh, people are going 4.5 to 5 years less than the average American or Canadian, and more than that in terms of Scandinavians, to school every year. It is very tough to compete with other countries when you have 4.5 to 5 to 6 years less of schooling per inhabitant. I would say it's impossible to compete other than in respects to costs, which is something that we saw in the last panel. But we don't just want to compete because we have low labor costs. We want to compete by being productive uh, and very creative in the 21st century. The 21st century will belong to those who create, not to those who have low costs in labor force. We're not only losing uh, competitivity year by year. We're losing competitivity every Monday and every Tuesday and every Wednesday and every Thursday and every Friday of every week of every year. Our school day for a primary school and this big push of the Mexican government to bring everybody into school is the fact that the kids go into school at 8 in the morning and they come out at 12.30. 4.5 hours a day. And then we are number one in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development in the amount of uh, days that teachers miss going to class. If you combine all of these factors, uh, you have the following data. Our kids are going to school half the hours that kids are going to school in Korea, Finland, France, Canada, and the United States. We have to change this. And we're starting to change this. But it will take time. Let me turn now to quality of education, which, of course, is the king of teams of uh, issues, sorry, in terms of uh, education. And these are the results of the PISA examination uh, done by all the OECD countries plus. Uh, 
uh, every three years uh, at 15 years of age. So you're trying to determine how much uh, competencies your kids have in math, science, reading comprehension principally. These are the results for uh, math. It's amazing uh, Shanghai beat the China, Chinese, uh, the most developed Chinese province. It's not the whole country, but the most developed Chinese province beat everybody in the world in math, science, and reading comprehension. Watch out. This is a call to arms. This is a call to action for everybody, not just Mexico, the United States as well. Then you can see uh, they're copying what their neighbors did, Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Korea, Japan. And then there are the Nordic countries uh, in Europe and other European countries. Uh, Canada is the only really uh, well-geared education system at the basic uh, uh, school level in all of the Americas. As you can see, the United States is uh, dragging behind in mid-level uh, in the table. Let me point out uh, very quickly uh, Poland, devastated by the Nazis and then by the Soviets, is better in education than the Germans and the Russians. And that's why it has big push in Eastern European uh, reform. Let me point out to Vietnam, 17th in the world, much better than the United States in basic schooling. Much better. Amazing. Uh, per capita GDP, 1,500. You can do stupendous things in very difficult environments, if you really have the will to do it. First Latin American uh, participant, Chile, 51st. And between the 51st in Chile and the 65th place of Peru, you have eight Latin American countries. Carlos Capistrano, a wonderful presentation. He said the history of Latin America in one chart in terms of macroeconomic issues. I would say this is a more important chart to understand the history and the present of Latin America. Latin America is not the poorest region in the world, but it's the most unequal region in the world. Where is social mobility going to come from if we're not preparing our people? Let me delve a little bit more into the results of Mexico in the peace examination. Uh, the red strip is failed, level zero, one out of six levels. Level or this, the orange strip is level two out of six levels. Uh, then you can see uh, level three is yellow, and then four, five, and six is in green, almost non-existent. If you add up failed and barely passing, you have 82.5% of our generation in math. 84% in science, and 75.6% in reading comprehension. This is stating very clearly how failed our education system is. If you fail three quarters to four fifths of each generation, you're just simulating. We have to change this, and we're going to change it. But we have to be very clear at where we're standing, otherwise we're not going to change things. Just look at the coloring of this are we going to be able to compete with those large uh, fringes of green and, and yellow from other countries with our huge bands of red and orange? Will, let me ask you, the energy and the telecom reform change this? They might help more resources, but they won't change this. 
And if we don't change this, there's not going to be a sustainable Mexico moment. Where are the Bill Gates, the Steve Jobs, the Mark Zuckerbergs in Mexico? 55% of uh, Shanghai kids, excellent in math. 30% of the Koreans, 8.8% in Mexico, in United States, sorry, 0.6% in Mexico, 0.6%. We don't get to 1%. Korea, population 48 million, registered 12,000 pat patents at the international level in 2013. All of Latin America, all of Latin America, not Mexico, 595 million in population, 1,200 patents at the international level. Mexico moment? Sorry. No Mexico moment. Not for the time being. We have to work very hard. Okay. Last in terms of diagnosis, and then I'll let you know what we're doing to change all of this. This is a PISA by socioeconomic standing, divided in 10 different gradients. What this says is that the top 10% in socioeconomic terms in Mexico is worst off in preparation at 15 years of age than the 10 worst off in Canada. This is data, my, uh, dear friends. This is not my opinion. Let me put this in colloquial terms. Lady who had to leave Oaxaca because she didn't find the chance to live there 15 years ago, found a job in Quebec cleaning the bathrooms in the hockey stadium, sent her girl to school. Her girl is better prepared than the boys and girls, sons of politicians, businessmen, and financiers of Mexico at 15 years of age. So we have a problem at the bottom, and we have a problem at the top. And this is why in Mexico it is much more important to know who than to know what. Very unfortunate. We have to change this. How do we go about reform? Two, go two main goals, catch up with the world in quantity of education and catch up with the world in quality of education. I'm going to make this bold statement. We're not going to catch up with the world unless we catch up with the world in education, in preparation of our people. That's the main thing that we have to look at for the 21st century. How we go about that? Put the state back in charge of education. They were not in charge of education. The unions were, up to very recently. Teacher professionalization, transparent and efficient spending, and school autonomy and participation. Critical issues, the four of them. Okay, nine important advances. I'm going to go very quickly. Much greater attention and priority given to education. It's very refreshing to hear people in the financial area and the political area and the economic area uh, talk about education reform in Mexico, and that is being talked about here. It's critical because you cannot solve something that is in obscurity. You have to bring it up to the light in order to have structural change. Martin Luther King, letter from Birmingham, he was very clear. Injustice, how you deal with injustice, you bring it to the fore. And you make it generate social tension, and then you start dealing with it. If it's not known, then it's not solved. Second, we did a very, very significant reform of all our laws uh, in the country. 
We changed Article 3 of the Constitution. We changed the right to education defined as going to school to learning in school. Much, much different. You're going to break the human right if a kid coming out of high school hasn't learned. And it will be defended in courts. We have already done that with the, this new uh, legislation. All the secondary legislation was profoundly reformed. Leonardo Curcio was saying most important reform, educational, normative, normative reform in the history of Mexico. And I will state that outright as well. Very, very important. Third, what does this uh, reform mandate? It mandates, among other things, that anybody coming into the system, teacher, principal, supervisor, has to go through a mandatory examination to get a post. And only the best ones will get that post. That seems logical. Meritocracy. But of course, up to the beginning of this law, those places were given out politically. They were given hereditarily. They were sold and they were rented. Believe it or not. That's how we got our teacher corps. And we're changing all that in favor of meritocracy. Over the last year and a half, 76,500 teacher, principal, and supervisory posts have been given out through this mandatory process. Critical. That's about 5% of all the teaching core, and this is accelerating. So every year we're getting better teachers into our system. If you get better teachers into your schools, you're going to get better education. Number four. We're doing away the teacher schools monopoly. Of course, they were also controlled by the unions. The teacher schools monopoly on teaching post has been broken. Now you will be able to come from ITAM or UNAM or Universidad Autónoma de Monterrey or from UCSD and challenge for a post in a, the Mexican uh, public system. If you win the mandatory examination, you are in. This is absolutely critical. Next step. We are doing a mandatory assessment and professional development for all active teachers. This is taking place for the first time in our history at this very moment. Four phases of teaching performance assessment, as you see. One of them, the exam of teaching uh, knowledge and competences, is taking place on the 14th and 15th of this month for 150,000 Mexican teachers. First time ever that we are certifying our teachers, that we're going to know who they are and what they're lacking, and how we can help them be better teachers. Now, if you fail, you have two more chances. If you fail the third time, you're out of the classroom. If you just came into the system through the new mandatory uh, way to get into the system, then on your third failure, you're out of a job. We're doing away with teacher tenure. It's finished in Mexican law. We need a national crusade to improve teacher preparation and professional development. Absolutely critical. We're going to invest this year, it's already in the budget, six times more than we were spending in teacher preparation last year. So we're making a big push here. Universities in Mexico are going to have a big challenge to try to help us prepare the teachers in the public uh, uh, school system to be better. Seven, uh, we have a, a, a referee a new referee, autonomous referee, for the whole evaluation of the system of the schools of the teachers of the kids, uh, Instituto Nacional para la Evaluación de la Educación. They're slowly but surely growing up to the challenge, very important. And uh, we did a census, uh, 
and now we're going into a system for education information and management system, uh, which is critical. The Mexican government had a black, uh, you know, uh, blindfold. It was blindfolded. It doesn't know what the hell is going on in schools. It doesn't know, doesn't have the slightest idea of whether it opened or it did not open, whether the teachers were there or they were not there, whether the principal is prepared or is not prepared. We have to connect all the, the schools in Mexico uh, to the central system and then uh, have it be very responsive to uh, the right of kids to learn and of uh, all of us who are paying education in Mexico. Very, very critical. And lastly, we're taking the first steps to correct, correct what is huge misspending. The first budgetary uh, item in Mexico is education. We spend 20% of all that government spends in education. Number one in the OECD in that respect. But there's huge corruption in education. When we talk about corruption, and I agree with uh, the panelists that, who said that we are, have to go for rule of law now, if you corrupt education, you have a societal corruption problem. And there's huge corruption in the educational system, huge corruption. So we have to end double negotiation. Uh, the union leaders negotiated at the federal level and local level, and that just pushed the prices of education up without any results uh, for that uh, rise in prices. Uh, now we're spending lots of money up to, um, it says there, billions of dollars, it should say. It's a few, uh, I think it's $4 billion that we're investing over the next uh, few um, years in the most backward schools. Schools that sometimes do not have floor, no? Ernesto Canales and I are in a um, collective action suit uh, against the Mexican government in a school in Guerrero that is, uh, has a gradient to it and it is mud. The floor is mud. And these are not a few schools. There are thousands of schools like this. Uh, and they're recentralizing teacher payment uh, Pasconsuelo talked about the issues of federalism. This is a regression in federalism, yes, because the governors were completely irresponsible in the use of the resources uh, given to them by us. So we're collaborating to bring transparency and efficiency, and sorry to get upset like that, but it's shameful. Uh, and finally, it's about Implementation, implementation, implementation. This is already in the books. And we'll have to do many more reforms uh, in education other than this one. But this one is critical to get the right personnel uh, uh, going to school. And it's going to be tough. Some of the panelists talk, talk about these reforms, telecom, energy, education, as if they were a given. They're not given. The most difficult and important part is implementation not getting through the constitutional and legal part of it. It's implementing against all the entrenched interests and against all the customs and culture. This is what is pro uh, completely uh, a priority uh, right now. And uh, finally, um, I think I am, you see, I'm, I'm very clear about how I feel about the educational system. I feel very good about this uh, reform as an initial step, 
to bring about change in Mexico, uh, but we have to make it good in order to give our uh, wings to our kids. They deserve it, and I really and truly believe that the only Mexico moment that will last will be a moment in which our people really get a chance to be their best selves. Thank you very much. Great information, thank you. Next, we're going to invite uh, Judith Mariscal, uh, professor at CIDE and director of CIDE's telecommunications research program. Dr. Mariscal. Thank you, David. I also want to thank Manuel Weinberg for the invitation. I'm very happy to be here. I think the effort, Peter Cowie and all of you are doing is, is really remarkable. It's acknowledging the reality of the integration of US and Mexico, of the blurring of the boundaries, even though, you know, despite the physical boundaries between the borders. Um, so I think understanding this and explaining uh, this phenomena is, is important. So I'm, I'm going to be brief, I think. Um, I'm just going to set the context for the discussion in the panel. Um, following David's questions, um, and I know that by this time of the day, the Mexico moment is there or isn't there is getting kind of old. Um, but I think it's important to look at it from this perspective, from the telecommunications perspective, and I would agree with Paz Consuelo in, in what is the Mexican moment. You know, it, was there a Mexican moment? I think yes. The answer is yes. What, what is it? I think it cannot be overstated, the role of the pacto, the role of the parties getting together and drafting these reforms, um, after years of stalemate. Now, you know, it, it's sort of ironic because the stalemate was explained in part by the PRI itself when it was in the opposition. Now it decided to, to break the stalemate when it came into power. Um, it's, it's also the way it was done. I think it, it, it was... You know, it's, you're able to understand it because I think that the first part of the reform, the first month of uh, of the um, negotiations, were really left mostly to the opposition. The, the telecommunications reform was really drafted by the PAN and the PRD. Uh, the PRI did not get directly involved in writing the the first draft. It became involved. Later on, and this also explains part of the nature of this reform, which is at least part of this. A lot you can see the state back in, in into the telecommunications reform. This is happening in other countries, not only in Mexico, and this has to do. It, it's sort of a separate subject, but it has to do with the importance of ICTs and with broadband. In specific, there, there is like a career, you know, that of countries getting there and having broadband displayed. Um, what does it mean? Why is this, this moment important? Um, I, I'm not going to argue that education is less is important than telecommunication, but um, telecommunication is an enabler for education. It's an enabler for um, inclusion. 
not only in education, which is critical, but also in health, um, in financial inclusion, in obviously uh, communication between citizens and citizens with governments. Um, in, in general, you know what Manuel Castells has called the information revolution is is part of the path to the modern world and to development, including um, eliminating or diminishing inequality. Um, Jeffrey Sachs said that broadband, well, that mobile telephony was the greatest gift to development, and today it's mobile broadband, what that is, the, the path, the mechanism through which it happens, through e-education, e-health. Um, now, what is the context in telecommunications? Just briefly, why, again, you know, why was this important? Why was there this um, critical time that, that this happened for years in the telecommunications sector? And uh, Carlos Casasus is here, and he was an important actor in, in this sector. And he suffered, I think, part of one of the biggest problems that was uh, lack of institutions, as it happened in other places, other sectors in Mexico. There was there there has been years of regulatory paralysis. Um, one of the reasons for that is the lack of independence of the regulatory agency of Cofetel, that depended on its budget and its daily decisions on the Ministry of Communications. There is the one of the highest concentration, market concentration um, in the world, both in broadcasting and in telephony and te in telecommunications. Tariffs were very high. They were high, they still are high in Latin America, um, but in Mexico they were very high. And also it was full of amparos. You know, there was, there was just really a paralysis because the regu regulator couldn't do anything. Um, so what happened? What, just briefly, what are the big pieces of, of this reform? First, I think we have to understand this reform as a reaction to a context of many regulations that had not been able to be implemented. Um, all the regulations that try to discipline the market would take, in, I think, 10 years for Telmex, the, the antitrust company issued um, mandate to declare Telmex to be a dominant player in the market, and it took 10 years to be resolved. After 10 years in 2007, uh, they won, you know, the government won, but by then the conditions had changed and it couldn't be implemented. So this... This law, you know, the, the, the new law that is in place today is very much part of the frustration of not being able to discipline the market. And the way they went about it is bringing the state back in, in several ways. One of, of the, I would say, the cornerstone of this new telecommunications law was the transformation of the regulatory agency. I think that is a great transformation. I think it was highly needed, and I think that the new regulatory agency is doing reasonably well in terms of, of its um, functions. Now it's being, it can place sanctions in place. Uh, the amparos cannot block the implementation. 
There's also, in general, less barriers to entry. A very important one was the elimination of the limits on foreign direct investment. And that, as a result of that, we have AT&T competing with um, America Mobile in, in the market. Um, the other, you know, we have the, the regulatory agency as an important part of this. A second one that is very important was the mandate to create two wholesale networks. I'm not going to get into the details, the technical details of this, but basically there are two networks. One network is to um, construct fixed broadband. This is going to come from the utilities that the Comisión the energía has the fiber optic that is already there. It, it has to be lit up and it has to be invested upon and then you can have a network that will um, hopefully be used also to go to cover schools, hospitals and office, uh, public offices. Um, the second one, well, all of the... Um, the assets that CFA has are going to be transferred or have been transferred. It's not very clear to um, SST and specifically to an agency called Telecom Telegrafos. And this is where you can see what I meant by the state back in. You know, now the state is not only going to regulate and come in to correct marker failures, it's going a step further and it's becoming. Um, a participant in the market. The second uh, network, and to me that is where um, going directly to are we moving forward or not, this has been not moving forward. I believe this has been a great mistake in the Constitution. Um, is the creation of a mobile broadband wholesale network. Um, well, the idea is good of having a network that is wholesale that will not go to the end market um, and it will be able to promote competition, local competition. The problem here, well, first of all, we have, it should have been ready starting two years ago. So we're late. Because I think we're late, uh, not only because it's a government process, I think because the model in itself is very complicated. It's going to be a public partner, um, private-public partnership. But the biggest problem, I think, is that they're going to use all of the spectrum, the, the highest-valued spectrum in the market all over the world, that is the digital dividend, the 700 megahertz bandwidth, that is the one that was liberated from going from the analog, from analog TV to digital TV, we, that, that spectrum was liberated, and that is a spectrum where LTE, 4G, you know, that is a spectrum we all want, or the, the, it's the livelihoods of companies for them to invest and to give better quality services, you know, all the promises of the um, information and revolution, better pricing, um, better... Um, capability in, in general. Well, they're, they're keeping that. Other countries in the world have already auctioned this spectrum. 
uh, in Latin America, Chile, Brazil. In fact, the only other place, this is a very innovative model that um, they're using, keeping this spectrum um, for government use, um, only in Rwanda. That is the only country in the world that, that they've been doing something similar to this. So basically, it's spectrum hoarding. Um, it's still there. You know, it's in the Constitution, um, but that part is very worrisome. Um, however, in terms of competition, that was one of the crucial objectives of the telecommunications law. It's We've seen, I, I think it was mentioned in the panel, uh, the previous panel, that we've already seen uh, part of the benefits. And it has a lot to do with the fact that uh, Telmex and America Mobile are facing real, are facing uh, competition that is very serious, is investing a lot, and it's AT&T that bought Nextel and Usacel, and now is planning to invest something around $3 billion. Um, the other you know, sort of bittersweet part is that, yes, they've been, EFT has been able to implement um, asymmetric regulation to America Mobile. In particular, uh, the interconnection rates have gone down to zero. Um, and you see that in prices, in, in tariffs, in general tariffs. Over the past year, they've gone down 20, 30 percent. And, and somebody was mentioning this. We do have lower tariffs. We'll need more spectrum in the market to really see the quality of the service go up. You know, we still, our cell doesn't work, it crashes, and we need spectrum for that. Um, we are. I think the, the status quo was definitely changed with, with this law. It was changed because it changed the process to implement, to design and implement laws through the regulatory agency. Um, there's more transparency, not enough transparency, not enough inclusion, but there is definitely a step forward, and, and we see that a concrete um, impact of that is, is the investment by AT&T. Um, Televisa, however, has been gone unchallenged. Originally in the Pacto, the idea was to curtail both um, Telmex and Televisa, but Televisa has had, even though it has a lot less economic power than Telmex, it has, it has political power in in elections, and as of now, it has it has been completely unchallenged. Um, what's next? And, and I think that's in, in technical terms. Let me just put it this way: I think that what this law has done is looked to the past, trying to correct the the lack of of policy implementation in in the sector in Mexico. What it needed also was to look forward. And it, it fixed and it helped um, get increased competition, static competition in terms of short-term pricing. It did not do much. It does not say much about dynamic competition. And when I, we're thinking of dynamic competition, 
we mean innovation. We mean we mean um, all, you know technology is changing every day, and regulation all over the world always drags behind innovation. Um, but this law didn't have enough push. Um, which re- really means, you know, forward-looking regulation that in some ways means deregulation. It's just, you know, don't get on the way. Um, so, yes, you know, the, the, the answer to the question is I believe so. It, the nature of this specific reform has some important risks, uh, but it, we are better off than we were and we have the incentives in place in, in many parts of, of the sector. And hopefully the decision-making process, which is what gives um, certainty to investors, will strengthen in this process. Thank you. Uh, next we're going to invite... Uh, Jerry Mar- Jeremy Martin, the director of the Energy Program at the Institute of the Americas, also, according to his bio, diehard Red Sox Nation fan uh, or member. Um, so, and uh, fifth place is, you know, not, not so bad in the division. But anyway, go, go ahead. Wow, how do you go from there? <laughs> hey, I, I root for the Phillies. So I guess anywhere, but that's only one, one way to go with up, yeah. Uh, Thank you, David. Thank you, Melissa. Graciela, so good to see you again. Welcome back to town. Uh, So I'm the energy guy. All right, here we go. I'm sorry I missed this morning, so, uh, but I guess my role is to talk energy. And uh, what I I thought, I think folks know the general uh, terms, but I want to make a clear point when I start, when I say I'm the energy guy. I'm looking at this through the energy lens, and and what I really mean by that is energy is a long-term business. So anytime you want to talk about transformation, anytime you want to talk about what's happening vis-a-vis structural reform and you mention the word energy, you better also think long-term. And so when you talk about these transformational moments or whatever you want to call them, you have to consider things in a long-term. Now, what's long-term? That's a bit up to, uh, to how you want to define it, but I think we have to think at least of a 10 to 15-year, if not 20-year horizon. Power contracts often are 15-year terms. Oil projects, 20- to 30-year terms. Those are the kinds of, of, of timings we're talking about. Um, four things the Mexican government did, the Peña Nieto government, when it took office and started to talk about energy reform. And I'm oversimplifying a bit, but I'll come back to this, and that's why I want to talk about four things. Four selling points of energy reform. So everyone knows that the, the Mexican energy system and that Mexicans, uh, Mexico's energy sector was, uh, in, in a word, a disaster over the last couple of decades. So when the Peña Nieto government came in, they had committed to, to, to overhauling the sector as part of this structural uh, agenda, education, telecom, uh, economic reform, electoral reform. So what did they say? They said, we are going to increase oil production by 500,000 barrels a day because, as most of us in this room know, Mexico had been declining in oil production for the last decade. So they said, we're going to, why do we need to do reform? We need to increase oil production by 500,000 barrels a day. We're going to generate $62.5 billion of investment. We know how important we need to bring in new investment in this country, and there's not that many places we can do it, but energy is certainly one area we can do it. And we're going to bring in, we're going to generate $62.5 billion of of energy investment in the sexenio by reforming the energy sector. 
What's the other thing? Well, at the end of the Calderon government, there had been huge natural gas disruptions, huge outages, huge issues in Monterey. Industry was having to take shifts off. There were outages. There was cuts. Natural gas supplies were not there. It was a real hit on the economy and a real hit on the energy sector <coughs> as if it needed anything more. So another piece of the reform was we are going to boost and recover, if not increase, natural gas supplies in Mexico. Fourth piece, and this was sort of the one I think we all heard the radio ads here, even in town from the cross-border radio, we're going to reduce the price of electricity. And that's the kind of thing, you know, the, the, the pocketbook issue, the reduce, the reduce consumers' electric price. But these last two pieces of natural gas increase and reduced uh, power prices are also important from the broader structural, the broader economic competitivity element of Mexico. And so, you know, we can debate Mexico moving forward, we can debate all these things, and I'll just add my, uh, my, my quick parenthetical response on that. I always found it a bit, a, a bit of a media construct, this whole idea of a Mexico moving forward, Newsweek covers, Thomas Friedman, Datelines, et cetera. So, all right, there, got that out of the way. Uh, Mexico moment, a bit of a construct, a media construct, if you will. But I think the, the, the point is that, that the, the government set these targets, set these broad goals, these selling points, and many of them were very, very directed at how we're going to boost economic development, how we're going to boost com- competitivity, and that's especially these pieces of uh, natural gas and uh, p- reducing power prices. So um, uh, let me say one other thing before I move on, and that is a question about the pace, because I think when we talk about this idea of where Mexico is today or where Mexico is in, in year three of the Peña Nieto government, and we talk about moving forward, backwards, or, or whatever way. I think the key thing when you think about energy is the, the pace at which energy reform has moved. And that's very fast. It's very fast whether you look at it in the absolute terms or, or whether you look at it in terms of what other countries have done in terms of similar transformational um, efforts in the energy sector. Mexico, since the constitutional reform, and there was, as with all of these reforms, a constitutional reform in December of 2013 that changed a series of things vis-a-vis the energy sector. And then there was, in August of 2014, implementing legislation to follow on the constitutional amendment. Since that time, and we're not talking about that much time, I mean, a year plus, 15, 16, 18 months, Mexico has made incredible strides forward. Um, And I think this is important because when you look at examples like Brazil and you look at Colombia, the pace was much more deliberate. And so we can debate whether the implementation is, is being effective, and I'll come back to those four selling points and whether they've hit on some of them, but I think we have to acknowledge the rapidity and the pace of which this is moving ahead. Pemex has been stripped of its monopoly. CFE has been stripped of its monopoly. Um, the electric market, the new rules have been announced. There's an entire overhaul of the electric market at the wholesale, the retail rate. There's been two bid rounds of private for private investment in Mexico generating um, opportunities for private investors. Pemex did not participate in any of the bid rounds. Pemex was, uh, went through a process of having some of its assets turned over to the state for use in bidding. Um, and, and so the point is that in just the you know, year plus since the implementing legislation went into effect in August of 2014, we have seen a lot of activity. We have seen a lot of progress. So 
Um, th- those are really the main points. I mean, I, I think it's also useful to, to talk about things vis-a-vis oil, natural gas, and the electric sector. I mean, sometimes what happens when we get into discussions of energy, uh, we like to aggregate everything into just the broad, the broad brush uh, energy. And, and I think it's worth pulling out into three segments, if you will, power sector, oil, and natural gas. And just let me run, David, real quickly through these three, um, these three segments of the energy sector. And, and the power sector, I think, is important. And I just mentioned the efforts to strip CFE of its monopoly, to create a wholesale market, to create a, a new retail market. Um, but I think the other thing we want to talk about is the transition plan in terms of Mexico's energy matrix, electricity matrix. And there's a huge overhaul of moving from what had been about one-fifth to 25% of its matrix based on fuel oil and diesel and, and what you just could call dirty generation sources to cleaner burning fuels. That's natural gas, but it's really renewables. And we see a huge growth in wind energy in Mexico. Solar less so, geothermal a little bit, but really the wind growth, the, the, the potential for wind in Mexico is, is enormous. Solar potential is quite large. And so what we've seen is a target that has been set to move Mexico's energy matrix, its electric matrix really, to 35% clean energy by 2024. So I mention that as part of this power sector um, transformation because that's something to consider as we look at this broader reform of the, uh, the energy sector in Mexico, and this is specifically to the power sector. Um, and then I, I do want to mention what I said, that one of the selling points was to reduce prices, to reduce electricity prices, and, and that is happening. I think we're coming up on almost a year now where prices have been reduced in Mexico year on, uh, month on month. And so we have seen a reduction. Now, parenthetically, critics will argue that's not necessarily because of these reforms or these structural adjustments. But nevertheless, if you say you're going to reduce power prices during an energy reform process and power prices go down, you get points on the board. So uh, I think it's worth mentioning that. Um, which leads me right to natural gas, because I think one of the main reasons why you've seen power prices come down is because natural gas has been boosted. And Mexico has doubled its imports of natural gas from the United States in the last four years. And it will double again by the end of this sexenio. So by the end of 2018, Mexico will have doubled again its importation of natural gas from the United States. Why is that? Well, like I said before, because there was huge outages and, and demand shortages, shortages of demand. But also because natural gas coming from the U.S. is cheap, and right now Mexico is not in the position to produce its own natural gas or of sufficient quantities that will uh, be brought into the, the energy matrix in Mexico. So the cheaper gas from the U.S. has really been something that the Peña Nieto government has seized upon. There's something like $10 billion worth of pipelines that are being built in the next 12 to 18 months between CFE, Pemex, and some private initiatives. There's been a complete restructuring of the midstream, they call it, the pipeline infrastructure and network in Mexico. It's, it's generating huge opportunities, and there's really things happening. Again, to my point of the, the pace and the speed, you've seen deals that have been happening. You've seen pipelines inaugurated. You've seen, like I said, the doubling of imports, which reflects the increasing the capacity and the infrastructure. And just to, to finish on that, that also has a direct impact on the power price, because what's happened now, as they've moved from the diesel and fuel oil sources, which had been at a very high price, in bringing more cleaner burning power from gas, you've also reduced the prices. So I think you start to see some of these, these pieces that, that interconnect. And again, is that directly related to 
the reform, there's lots of ways to look at it. But I think one deal in particular would not have happened if not for the reforms. And that's a deal that Pemex did where it brought in 50% partners from a, a, a private equity and a bank in the United States to partner on a gas pipeline deal. That deal could not have happened previous to 2013. So there's lots of things happening also on natural gas. The, the, the importation capacity and what's happening in terms of its impact on power prices is extremely important to mention. Um, let me just finish with oil because oil has historically been in Mexico the third rail. It's been, it's been that issue that has been uh, you know, just a bridge too far. And through the constitutional amendment, the Peña government did indeed touch the third rail on this and take that on. What that meant, of course, was stripping Pemex of its constitutionally uh, allowed right to basically be the only owner and operator of oil in Mexico, hydrocarbons in Mexico. So that's a huge development. I don't think we can underestimate or under, you know, represent how important that development has been. And allowing private participation. I mentioned that deal where Pemex brought in private partners, whether financial partners on a pipeline. But more importantly, as Pemex was stripped of its sole operatorship, its sole responsibility in the Mexican state to, to, to manage all the hydrocarbons of the nation, the government now has taken blocks and been able to auction those and put those out to, to international bid. And that's where we've seen two bid rounds so far with results that have been, depending upon your, your viewpoint, um, a little bit less than, than, than was expected. But nevertheless, I think if we step back and we think about this through the long-term ve- lens, this is huge. This is two contracts or two bid rounds that, that ended up with four international private consortiums that have now agreed to invest something like $7 billion in Mexico to develop hydrocarbons, something that, again, was impossible until December of 2013. Um, There's a bid round coming up in December that's very well targeted to incorporate more Mexican companies. Some of these companies have been created in Mexico just to chase this new opportunity in terms of oil and gas bidding, companies that have been created by by well-known firms, uh, as well as uh, incorporating people who are ex-Pemex executives. So they're calling this next opportunity the Mexico Round, where you will see a lot of capital from within Mexico be invested into these projects. Uh, The one final piece on oil is the deep water. And the Gulf of Mexico, the Mexican side, if you ever look at a map and you look at drilling activity, it, it is absolutely shocking because what you will see if you take little dots for the drilling activity on the map of the Gulf of Mexico, you will almost see a darkened color on the U.S. side of the border from all of the activity that's going on in the U.S. Gulf of Mexico. And then you get to the Mexican side and you may see six, seven, eight dots that represent Pemex's drilling or exploration opportunity or efforts. So what's now going to happen is the deep water, the ultra deep water, what folks have called the, 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 the crown jewel of Mexico's hydrocarbons, will be put out to international competition. Yes, Mexico, or yes, Pemex will still have a role in some of that. There will be opportunities that Pemex has reserved. And there's an opportunity to joint venture on some projects in the deep water with Mexico. But most importantly, what you're finally going to see is an opportunity for large-scale international companies to bring to bear technology, know-how, and capacity on projects in the deep water and the ultra-deep waters of the Mexican Gulf. So... It's, it's, a, it's a fundamental transformation, but just to sort of uh, wrap up on my long-term lens, if, if we think projects are, if energy is always a, a long-term horizon, deep water 
oil and gas exploration? Is it even deeper, or even longer term horizon? It's something that it's a 15 to 20 year horizon. You probably won't see returns on those opportunities for at least seven to eight years. So uh, again, we need to think about all of these transformations in a long term horizon. Uh, we need to think about what's happened in terms of pace so far and why that's important. But then just, just to conclude, uh, you know, I think if we look at those four selling points and you look at the $62.5 billion of investment that the Mexican government suggested was going to flow with their energy reform, if you look at the 500,000 barrels a day of oil that they expected to increase by the end of their sexenio, I think those two questions, those two selling points, the jury's still out. I think we'll have to wait and see. I think the $62.5 billion was probably a great number in a, in a high-priced environment, a high-priced oil environment, but not so much today with $50 barrel of oil. And therefore, you'll also not probably see the, the increase in oil production that the government had hoped to gain by the end of their sexenio. But on those other two points I mentioned, the other two selling points, there already are returns. And so even though it's a long-term business, there, is even, there are points on the board that the Mexican government can, can really point to in terms of lower power prices and increased capacity and supplies of natural gas. And so I've, I've sort of rambled through a lot of things, but hopefully we can come back to some of these points. And those are some of the main things I wanted to share in terms of where we are today and in, in terms of whether Mexico, the Mexico moment, but, but more importantly, you know, the pace and congratulations to the Mexican government because, as you noted, the implementation is, is the tough part. You know, yes, getting the constitutional amendment, yes, getting some of the legislation together was, was, was challenging and took some time, political hurdles, but getting implementation done and getting it done right is, is, is extremely challenging. And so, so far, they're doing pretty well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, finally, we have uh, 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 Ernesto Canales, a uh, partner at uh, Canales y Socios Abogados, uh, also a founder of uh, Renace uh, and uh, a board member of the Red Nacional uh, para, uh, de Organizaciones Civiles de Apoyo a los Juicios Orales y el Debido Proceso. And really... Um, pr- easily one of the architects of uh, Mexico's judicial reform efforts, uh, a key leader on, on this issue. Uh, so it's really wonderful to have you with us. Please, uh, Ernesto Canales. Do you mind? Please. Thank you, David. Thank you, Manuel. And thank you, you all, for being here this afternoon. In spite of what you have been hearing, the criminal reform is the most important reform in Mexico. There you go. I didn't claim. Well, for the simple fact that uh, it really deals with the rule of law. So how come the other reforms can have positive results if there is not a rule of law in the country? Sorry, guys. In the last 10 years, Mexico has been undertaking a transformation of the administration of justice in the criminal system. Civil organizations were responsible to bring these changes into being. More than 200 academic uh, and nonprofit institutions have uh, worked on it. 20 years ago, a group of private lawyers organized under RENACE, a non-for-profit entity, decided to assist prisoners 
with no means that were suffering an injustice. Here I present uh, some hard numbers, how the situation was. Because of lack of trust, only 15% of all crimes were denounced. Less than 1% of criminals ended in prison with a guilty sentence because the system could not process well the cases. More than 60% of prisoners were accused of crimes of less than $200 and spent an average of one year behind bars. New rules needed to be enacted. Work to make general opinion aware of the necessity of these changes was made an integral part of the efforts. I will divide into five chapters the main topics of the criminal reform. First, strike out procedural privileges of the district attorneys. In the old system, the law granted district attorneys rights that effectively gave control over the results of the criminal cases. The playground for criminal cases was not fair. To make matters worse, in the old system, the district attorneys, as party responsible to conduct the investigative part of the procedures, could solely decide which evidence could form part of a case. This superior level of power of district attorney gave room to corruption and impunity, which could legally and easily enter into the process in deciding any criminal case. Second, construct rules that differentiate criminal processes. The new system considers several types of procedures, unlike the old one, that all crimes were subject to one procedure. The same rules applied to a homicide than to stealing a cellular phone. Now, for cases related to first offenders and non-violent crimes can be resolved by quadrilateral negotiations district attorneys, accused, victims, and judges. By this method, over 90% of all cases can be terminated by days or weeks, nor months or years. On the contrary, for high crimes, the system orders public trials to be presided by a panel of three judges in which all evidences are to be presented continuously. With the old rules, the story of the crime was lost in multiple separate instances in which the judge was not required to be present. He ruled over a file of written documents. Another hard number, more than 85% of prisoners never were faced by a judge. Third, 
substance versus form. The new rules mean a huge step toward changing the focus of attention of the Mexican criminal system from granting greater importance to form over the substance. The reform is reverting the order. The new criminal system has adopted rules that put an end to the traditional manner by which the law has been applied in civil law countries, where formality could easily put a veil over the content of the matter. Judges serve more as a checkpoint to review if all forms have been complied by the different authorities than as deciding justice in view of the merits of the case at hand. Four, preventive prison. Over 150,000 prisoners of a total of roughly 200,000 are serving term without having been found guilty. In the old system, the principle of presumed innocence is set aside to give room to a concept that allows district attorneys to ask for prison as a preventive manner. The old rules even order mandatory prison without trial for a list of crimes that grew by the year, more than 50 in the last call, even crimes not tied to danger to society. It was highly expeditious because no great investigative work needed to be performed to put practically anyone in jail without a trial. Once in jail, to be brought to trial could take years. It has given ground to a generalized system of corruption to send or not to send someone to prison. The new rules limit the application of preventive prison only to criminals that mean physical, that mean danger to society. Judicial for uh, for judicial uh, I'm sorry, judicial participation for matters re related to prisons. The new system has created a judge to prison cases. This means that the control and responsibility of the jails do not rest only on the police and security forces. From now on, detainees have access to the judiciary for all claims related to the fulfillment of their respective sentence. Again, the state of the Mexican jails demanded new rules that could put an end to all kinds of illegalities for which they have become worldly famous. Obviously, the mere participation of the judiciary on these matters do not automatically put an end to the present horrendous situation, but at least now exist 
a prison judge means that changes can come. Pillars of the new procedural criminal system. Transformative modification in the areas that support criminal processes are needed. Transformative modification. One, police force stands of greater importance. Although a lot of work and money have been spent on improving the federal police in terms of compensation, training, intelligence, and equipment, the case to sign out is the police of the state of Nuevo Leon, which has been formed in a joint effort by the state authorities and private sector. It results in being capable of reducing criminal uh, indices have been outstanding. The correlation of improved police system and the betterment of public security is direct. Second, oral trials demands a new set of rules regarding coordination among the different elements of the equation. Police, district attorney, public defenders, prisons, authorities, and the judiciary. The chain has to work out as all seeking the same result, justice for every criminal action. Especially, a new attitude from judges is required to think of themselves as the final instance to make justice in Mexico. Their constitutional autonomy does not mean autism toward the needs of society. Third, prisons need to be clean off of illegalities. It is unacceptable that in those closed sites, authorities cannot enforce law. At present, in some instances, jails are under the control of criminal groups. In addition, public policy needs to be put in place to create a national program for education of prisoners to enable them to have a positive life after they serve term. Results of the criminal reform. Since uh, the new system has been applied in some states for more than 10 years, there is, hard, there is some hard data that shows positive changes of tremendous importance for the daily life of the country. Here are some hard data. 80% of prisoners who have been given a guilty sentence in DF in 2014, an entity with no reform, consider that they have received an unjust penalty versus 40% in the states with reform. That's a different quality of justice. Victim denouncing have increased from 15% national average to 35% in a state with reform. Suppose in, in the most advanced countries is around 60%. It's still far away, but much, much better than the 15%. 
time elapsed from detention to sentence have decreased for minor crimes from months to days or weeks and for major crimes from years to months or weeks. How this criminal reform has been achieved? Socialization. It was not a reform fought by clean people versus corrupt ones. Arguments, reasons, and data were the arms of civil organizations used in thousands of one-to-one meetings with key actors of the political, social, and criminal scene. Likewise, forums, seminars, conferences were organized to advance the why and the how of the main aspect of these changes. A great effort to socialize, to socially disseminate the reform was a continuous and continues to be a key factor that has rendered political strength and influence to the political parties and politicians to be able to approve the changes. One uh, documentary, Presumed Guilty, the case of an innocent in prison for three years, was viewed by 30 million Mexicans. Pending issues. Several important new laws need to be enacted to complete the legal framework for the reform to fully work. The above referred pillars of reform demand greater attention and money. Only civil organization can take the political perspective which is lost by public officials who do not have a permanent interest in these matters. Criminal actions are so complex that cannot be left out to the responsibility of criminal authorities only. Thank you. We're having a, we're running a little bit behind schedule, so we'll have a 15-minute discussion. Unfortunately, we will not be able to have a Q&A session. We'll have a, an opportunity for you to chat with the, with the panelists during the break. Thank you. I'm going to counterman that and just say we'll have a five-minute discussion and, and open up for any, any questions. That was my your point. prerogative. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, uh, because I'm sure there are better questions in the audience than I can come up with myself. I, I want to take note of just a couple of things. Um, one, um, it's interesting to me that you know across the board here, we're talking about uh, areas of uh, policy that require very long-term thinking. Uh, whether we're talking about energy or education, uh, justice sector reform, um, even telecom. I mean, the, the, the contracts, as Jeremy, Jeremy mentioned, uh, the timelines are uh, phrased in terms of decades, right? And if you're talking about education uh, or uh, retraining lawyers and judges, you're talking about generations. Uh, so um, 
I think that's a common thread throughout uh, the panel. And so we're in year two or three of some of these reforms, uh, or just a few years. Um, we have to obviously withhold some of our judgment. Um, another point that I think comes out in uh, the discussion, except for Jeremy's, and I want to raise a question about this, is, is the issue of accountability. Uh, accountability is not a word that neatly translates into Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, at least there, I, I can't think of a word. Well, okay, responsabilidad is one word. Rendición de cuentas. I'm going. I'm going to rendición. But let's start with responsabilidad. You know who did it, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily accountable. Let's go rendición de cuentas. Okay, I'll tell you what I did, but that doesn't mean I'm necessarily accountable. I'm sorry. Punabilidad. I'm going to punish you. That doesn't necessarily mean I did it, right? Um, there are, uh, there, there's something about the concept of accountability that's very important across all of these areas, whether you're talking about the regulatory mechanisms that we have in place for um, uh, telecom companies, uh, teachers, uh, or uh, uh, actors within the judicial system. What we didn't hear about, I, and I, I'm curious, is just what are the accountability mechanisms, uh, what are some of the issues when it comes to uh, dealing with issues of corruption or uh, performance uh, in the energy sector. Lastly, um, I thought it was a, a really brilliant uh, point that was made uh, by Judith Marscal about the change in political dynamics uh, after 12 years of pan-government uh, in which the PRI seemed to have its foot on the brakes. Um, during the Peña Nieto administration, the PRI took its foot off the brakes, but let the other two parties kind of drive the reform process forward. So Mexico, you know, if it's a car, is a car that has one party with its foot on the brake and the other parties with their foot on the gas. Uh, you've got these minions parties, you know, the humanist party and other... Or I, I, the PRD maybe has its finger on the blinkers. I don't know. But, um, uh, or AMLO, maybe. But, um, you know, what do we have to look forward to in terms of the political dynamics? Um, at this point, uh, I think the growth of... Uh, minor parties and splinter parties in Mexico is a reflection of an enormous amount of discontent with the political class and the political options in Mexico. And so to the extent to which this car is going to move forward into the future on any of these long-term reforms, um, you know, where, uh, what's the hope for or what are the directions that we're going to see uh, politically? Okay. <laughs> Jeremy. <laughs> Uh, wow. So uh, let, let's go through this quickly. Uh, let me start the, the idea of the Mexico moment, just to put a little finishing touch on this. I do believe it was a construct, and I do believe there was a, a variety of things here, but I don't want to be so negative. I want to end on a little bit of a positive. I think why? Why was it such an embraced notion? We were so desperate for, for, for a positive narrative, right? I mean, everyone in this room, I guarantee you, we were desperate for a positive narrative at the time that we were starting to hear about the Mexico moment. So, yes, it's a political construct. It's easy for me to look back and say that's the case. But I think I'm guilty of wanting a positive narrative. And, and so I think we, got to, we have to take into account the context of when the Mexico moment was being unveiled, if you will. Accountability. Um, look, when you open a hermetically sealed market i.e. the government-controlled marketplace of energy in Mexico, and you open it to the private sector, you're going to start to introduce accountability in spades. You're going to introduce accountability at Pemex. 
You're going to introduce accountability in the bid rounds when people don't compete because the, qual uh, the fiscal and contractual terms are inadequate. You're, going to, you're introducing accountability in that regard. So that's sort of the market accountability. On top of that, the Mexican government is working hard, and again, I think at a quick pace, to implement additional, what some might call layers of bureaucracy, that will be accountability layers. There was already the National Hydrocarbons Commission that was a byproduct of a Calderon reform effort. That has been strengthened, given a much larger budget, given a, a much stronger role to be a regulator. Then you've created something called a SEA, which is a, another regulatory body. So the point is that there are some more layers of what would, would be called bureaucracy, but in, in, the, in, the, in the measure of, of accountability for the sector. Um, Denise, on the, the wonderful oil story, it's not so wonderful, honestly. It's a million, dollar, or a million barrels a day lost production since about 2004. So I think that's something that I don't know what's going to happen, and there are definitely no wins there right now. But on renewables, I think I used the, uh, the target, and it's a very, very laudable target of, of 35% uh, clean energy in the matrix by 2024. And they're on the way to that target. There's, there's a ways to go, but Mexico is enacting something called clean energy certificates as part of its power auction process that's coming up. These are important steps. They weren't there before reform. They're going to be there now. Um, I, there was a question about marijuana, and I still don't even know what vaping. I don't understand vaping, so I, uh, I, I'm just I'll skip the marijuana question. <laughs> well, I want to, to make a comment on this, whether Mexican moment or not. I think the concept does not exist in Mexico, hmm. at least uh, uh, by the... Results of the elections of Nuevo León, this concept that was brought by Peña Nieto uh, did not, uh, was not sustained and, and independent from, from, of course, from Peña Nieto, even from the other party, was elected governor by a very large majority. That means that uh, no one in, well, uh, the result is that uh, in, in Nuevo León, the, the concept of uh, um, Mexico moment is not uh, is not there. Well, I would just say in closing that I think no optimist ever thinks about the moment. <laughs> to be an optimist, you have to think about the long term. You have to have modest expectations, and. In that regard, I think we can all be optimistic about Mexico moving forward. Yes. So thank you so much. Uh, You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.